here at the uh, uh, Muriel and Ewing Kaufman Memorial Garden with Anne and Dwayne Hoover, the uh, horticulturalist. And uh, it's about six o'clock in the morning. My eyes are still tired. <laughs> Anne has just sort of smiled and said hi, and we can hear the water in the background. And Dwayne is sitting here going, hey, guys, I'm ready for work. It's lovely. What a beautiful place to come and work every day. I'm envious. It is wonderful to get up and watch the sunrise as I set sprinklers or get ready to pull weeds or line out the chores needed to be done that day. Yeah, this is a magical place, especially in the morning, because there's not a soul here but us. And you can smell the stock that's in full bloom surrounding us for spring, the roses. Um, you have a lot of, un well, to me, they're not unusual, but a lot of annuals that most people don't bother with anymore, Dwayne. Just mention a few of those. Well, I do a lot of bachelor buttons, larkspurs, balsam, a lot of reseeded annuals, a lot of early spring annuals that people really don't put in their gardens much anymore because people tend to be skipping that early spring gardening season and wanting to just be lazy, I guess, and only put the summer stuff in, which is going to last them longer. Most of my early spring annuals start going the first part of March, so I've already had several months worth of gardening season already here. That's a very English approach, isn't it? Oh, I would imagine so. I picked up a lot of the things uh, that I do in this garden from my travels over to England and France and uh, overseas. So a lot of this garden feels kind of European-like because I do enjoy traveling over it, it definitely looks that way. And perhaps you could explain to us how you got to where you are and how long you've been here, because it's fascinating, this garden. Wow, I have a, a passion of horticulture since a young boy with my grandmother, who I stayed on the farm instead of going out in the fields and going round and round the fields on the tractor. I opted to stay out and help her in the vegetable gardens and take care of uh, the areas around the house. So I, she really uh, inspired me for horticulture, and then I have a, actually a degree from Kansas State University in ornamental horticulture and plant pathology. I ran landscape crews for the next 18 years after I graduated from college for Soil Service Nursery, a small family-run nursery here in Kansas City. Uh, and then when this uh, job, or the position for this job came available in the spring of 99, I knew it was what I wanted to do. I was a gardener at heart. I really wasn't a salesperson. I applied and was the very privileged one to be chosen to get a come here. So, so have you been the only gardener here? I have been the only horticulturist or head gardener here at this garden since before we opened. Wow, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, if anyone hasn't been here, they really need to come down and see the huge variety of plants. It's superb. Tell us a little bit about the the history for our listeners behind this garden. Who who Mural and Ewing are and um, how this garden came about. Ewing and Muriel Hoffman are two wonderful people who lived in Kansas City. Uh, Mr. Kaufman made most of his money in pharmaceutical drugs um, and then all other kinds of business adventures. His main claim to fame was probably owning the Royals. Um, so he did own the Royals for quite a few years. Uh, they do a lot of different philanthropic work in Kansas City. They have two different foundations now since they're both passed that their daughter, Julia Irene, maintains and takes care of. Um, Mr. Kaufman's foundation goes for education and small business entrepreneurship predominantly. And Mrs. Kaufman tends to learn, lean towards the arts and beautifying Kansas City. So most of her money is what's given to maintain and take care of this garden so that it can be open at no charge every day of the year uh, to Kansas City and her visitors. How many pools do you have here? We actually have six uh, fountains that add to the number of public fountains in Kansas City, <laughs> which of course we're always uh, rivaling with Rome, Italy, to see who has the most public fountains. Um, and I found out a couple years ago on doing some research, it's not necessarily who has the most fountains, but who has the most fountains running. That's <laughs> <laughs> really true. I guess there is only just the one large pool and then a uh, smaller one when you come in, is that correct? Yeah, you have the small um, Shell Girl statue, which is a small fountain there at the entrance uh, done by Tom Corbin, a local artist here in Kansas City. And it's the first of our uh, fountains. The second one would be as you come into the second area of the garden, which we call the Green Garden. And it has a fairly large 16-foot octagonal pool with a, a fountain uh, that is in that. 
you go on into another area of the garden and you'll see where uh, the longest pool is, which is 80 foot long and 12 foot across. And then back behind the orangery, we have three jumping fountains that have nine different patterns they play, plus jumping across the walk. And that's all done on a shuffle pattern uh, by a computer down in the basement. So often people will come and ask, when's it gonna jump across the walk again? It's like, yeah. oh, I don't know, when's my favorite song gonna play on my CD player in my car again? <laughs> <laughs> that is my favorite garden though. I love the jumping ones. I think so. Yes, they're ever so hard to um, put in though. Oh, I'm sure, but they're just fun to sit there and you never know what's gonna come up next, the, literally. The Victorians um, used to, because they didn't have the computers, had um, uh, trees that they made out of copper and the copper would be hollow inside. And when people went past them, there was a little trip wire somewhere, and that would then spray out and catch people out. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a couple of gardens in, uh, in, in England like that. Wow. So you are in the middle of stage two for the year. We are in the middle of our second planting uh, go-round. Our spring is just finishing up here, and we're getting ready to put in our summer annuals. Um, so we've been pulling out the spring things like the pansies and the violas, the dianthus, snapdragons, lettuces and all that and rotating in with our summer annuals. And I popped back uh, yesterday morning actually to uh, just to make sure for this meeting and uh, our interview and how many how many volunteers do you have here working like they were great they're both like crazy. We had five volunteers yesterday morning we have a great volunteer staff at this garden if it wasn't for our volunteers there would be no way that I could maintain this garden and the quality that it's being maintained. I've got about 28 volunteers that come sometime during the month. Some come once a week, some come once a month, and a few come just on special occasions when we're changing out beds, decorating for the holidays, or if I need a large crew to help. So with the volunteer staff that I have here, this is all possible. It's, it's certainly effective. And you did an enormous amount of work yesterday. You must be more than halfway through changing the plants out. We're about halfway through the spring rotation. Um, we have the largest area left, which we're going to start removing on Monday. We'll go through the weekend, and then it'll be all getting chopped out and new things brought in and planted, hopefully by next weekend. So your spring uh, plantings that come up, some of it you mentioned were volunteers. So you've got the larkspur, the balsam, the nigella. Um, I see poppies over there. Correct? Yes. yes. Uh, so when you take those items out, obviously you don't have things that are reseeding themselves in those areas. So what sort of plantings for our listeners are you going to be replacing those plants with? Those plants don't get replaced. Those plants fill in my perennial spaces, and then when they're done blooming, the perennial takes its spot, such as where the larkspur is. If you notice closely, there's probably daylilies, um, maybe some Shasta daisies some sort of summer flowering perennial right next to it so that as that dies back down, I've got something right there in the place so that it's really never empty in the perennial gardens at all. That's what the use of the reseeded annuals are, is to fill those holes in those little spaces that I have in between the perennial bloom times. It's certainly very effective. I also noticed that you've followed the trend of um, having vegetables in, in amongst some of the uh, bedding plants. Well, that was something that I didn't really know was a trend that I've been doing since gardening with my grandmother. Uh, the German woman was absolutely incredible at design, I know now, after looking back, and she had peonies bordering one side, and next to her tomatoes she had a row of cut zinnias, and back in the back by the asparagus where she would use her asparagus foliage for cut flowers, she would always plant cannas and um, gladiolas. So with that inspiration, it, really hasn't been a trend to me. It's always been something that should be done. That way you can have beauty and edibles in the same area at the same time. When it gets to be fall, it, well, let me back up. The, the garden is open all year round, correct? The garden is open all year round. Okay, so I would imagine then, when do you start turning the to the next stage three? Gee, stage three usually comes in, oh, about, late August, early September with over 1,200 months. Oh. So wow. at that point we come in and I decide which of my summer annuals look tired mm -hmm. and they get pulled and mums have been chosen 
for those areas uh, to put in at that point. And just from gardening so long, you know what annuals are going to be tired by then. Mm -hmm. For example, my zinnias, they're, they're, yeah, they're, done. they're done by then. So I'm ready to put in something fresh looking at that time. About a month later, month to six weeks, uh, at that point, everything gets removed. And we put in what I call our winter annuals and all of our bulbs, of course, that have to be planted before the winter annuals on top. And we plant close to 10,000 tulip bulbs uh, every fall so that when you walk through the gate and look at the annual areas, it's just a big, beautiful mass of color. Oh, that's wonderful. So which is your favorite season? My favorite season is the spring and the fall, and it's only because of the temperature. <laughs> when you have to work outside, your favorite seasons to be when it's reasonable to work. Because when it gets hot in the summer and I want to be here early and I'm just pouring down with sweat. Yeah, it's 90 degrees at, at 9 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. I'm done with this. Yeah. Yes, that makes sense. And it's the humidity, too. And the plants always look so much fresher at that time of year, also, because it's fresh and yeah. it's not been scorched yet by the summer heat, wind, and sun that we have. And how many visitors do you usually see? Too many. <laughs> we, we do get a lot of visitors here at the Copper Memorial Garden, and actually uh, we have never kept track how many we get. I know that we have become so busy here in the last several years uh, that we have had to start splitting shifts on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evenings just to make sure there's someone here at the garden uh, maintaining, watching, and here for questions. Do you ever have music here? We uh, don't ever have music in the garden. Unfortunately, it's not something that's scheduled here. A couple years ago, uh, some kids over from uh, UMKC came over and played and practiced here. And to me, it didn't sound like they were practicing because they were so good. Uh, but it was beautiful to have music in the garden. Do you have this as a location for many wedding photos? Do you find that people use it for staging their photographs very often? Yeah, I wish we wouldn't have brought the wedding photos things up. It's not a, a good point of mine. Uh, the wedding photos and the large parties of people tend to be the rudest ones that come into the garden to take pictures. This is a garden and not a park and not a photographer's studio. This place is here to come contemplate, enjoy the plants, see what you can do in your garden, and be calm and peaceful. So many times the big wedding parties come in caravans. I've been in wedding parties and half drunk out of those vans before too. Um, but often they don't tend to care about the plants. They're not here to see the plants, they're here for the pictures. So that tends to be a problem of mine. So I'm always on top of photography. We are a private garden, privately owned, privately maintained, and privately funded. So we pretty much have the right to do what we want here. There are no special events or private parties or things like that that we would close the garden down for. But photography at this time is still allowed. Do you use lights here during the holiday time? We use some lights, but because we're only open until the sun goes down, uh, we don't use all that many. We concentrate on a large um, poinsettia show inside for the holiday since the Swope greenhouses have uh, gone to the wayside now. We're about the only large poinsettia show here in the city. Mm -hmm. So we have over 800 to 1,200 poinsettias that are used in the orangery uh, in the month of uh, December into the second week of January. And I notice we have a, a wonderful cat next to us. Can we, um, how, how long have uh, you and he been connected? My cat's name is Crazy and I adopted her from the zoo. Unfortunately, she was dropped off at the back gate and was trapped, and a friend of mine who works out there brought her here because he knew I was looking for a rabbiteer. Uh, so she actually does have a job and a purpose here in the garden. Um, we don't like to use any chemicals, uh, herbicides or insecticides, since we are so close to Brush Creek. I wouldn't want to think I was causing any of the runoff or pollution into the creek. So she is a part of my organic control that I don't have to use. Uh, so many things of that nature. She certainly looks effective. Well, you know, she's definitely more uh, smelly than anything else. <laughs> so this I, entire area is organic. So you don't I'm use... not going to say organic. I'm going to say earth friendly. Earth friendly. Okay. Um, there, and, and we definitely use um, IPM, Integrated Pest Management, so if I do have a huge problem, I will break out the arsenal in order to save a plant, but that hasn't been necessary for years. 
once you get the balance going and the garden pretty much takes care of itself and you know the spiders are there for a reason the ants come and take the scale off of my citrus and gardenias you know there's all these things that work together that if you destroy one small part of that chain your chain's broken so what what sort of a fertilizer would you use I use a granular type of fertilizer here on most of the beds. That way I can get enough uh, nutrients in there to grow the huge amount of quantity and turnover of plants sure. that I have. Um, but most of the beds are top dressed with compost after we pull them out at least once a year uh, in order to ensure more of the micronutrients that are being put back in. Yeah, the soil is um, excellent, isn't it, actually? Sometimes it's too well drained in the summer when I'm wanting it to hold moisture. Do you ever mulch? Um, I don't use any mulch materials unless it's so hot and so windy that I need to protect the soil from those two elements. I'd rather use a compost if I could. Right. Um, and pulling weeds is just part of the garden. So you know, right. even if you have mulch yeah. down, you're still going to have weeds. Yeah. And I don't like the hardwoods in particular because they use so much nitrogen in their decomposition yeah. uh, taken from the soil and the plant material. So, you know, I'd rather not. Mm -hmm. And I, I noticed that the, um, the actual structure is superbly um, laid out and constructed. And it looks like it just, it's been here forever. It, it, that's the beauty of it with all the stone and wrought iron and sculptures. It does have an older feel. Uh, we started getting some patinas now on the stonework and the, the rock walls and someone came over the other day and asked me if I was going to have the dirt washed off or uh, power washed off of the stone. I said, oh no, that's what I find attractive. Absolutely. It's not so bright white anymore. You know, when, when I built um, a Chelsea Flower Show garden, to make it look old, we used to get a mixture of soot and yogurt and spray it on and then you'd get that green mold forming immediately. And you're right, it just gives it that sense of agelessness. That's the kind of thing we do on our concrete statuaries here, is we put that yogurt or buttermilk on the statuary to encourage that green molds and algaes and things that start yeah. to develop on them. It's, it's just truly remarkable. If, if, if you haven't been here, you really have to come down and spend a few minutes. It's, it's just beautiful. Let's talk for just a second about these interesting uh, bird houses that you have scattered throughout the property? Well, those really aren't bird houses. Those are insect overwintering nests. And that was inspired to me uh, by an idea in uh, France last year and over in uh, some of the cities where they clean up too much and they don't have enough debris area and they want to do gardening, uh, they found that they didn't have enough insects. So they would build these insect overwintering houses and by what stuff in them is what beneficial insects were trying to attract to oh, overwinter cool. there. So in uh, one garden in the middle of Paris, there was actually, it was a uh, public garden where you would have your own little garden spot. They had pallets stacked 12, 12 tall stuffed with all this debris and material so that the insects could overwinter there and pollinate their vegetable gardens uh, the following year. Uh, but done a lot in areas where things are kept way clean. Uh, a lot of buildings, a lot of concrete. New York City, they're up on the skyline. Um, things in those large metropolitan areas they serve and are beneficial. Ours are more ornamental. It gives me something to talk about people, how beneficial the insects are to a garden. Absolutely. They certainly look really uh, unusual and attractive. Well, they're very cute, and my volunteers, again, did a great job of putting together. That's why they're all different, because each volunteer that wanted to do a project uh, did a different one, and I brought all the materials in one day, and we had a builder, and built it up and put them in the garden. Um, how many are there? There are six of them throughout the garden. What is the uh, square footage <coughs> of the garden? Well, there's about two acres of garden space within the wrought iron fence and stone wall. Don't know exactly square foot, but it's oh, about two acres. acres. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah. that's a funny imperial measurement. Uh, yes. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Metric here. I'm... Metric and imperial, I know. You always got to rub it in the ear from England. Well, you know, it. it's, sometimes it's a few clues, like the, the accent. And things. <laughs> um, there are a few clues. So the statues in this, uh, in the mall, in the larger pond, are they, were they commissioned specially as well? 
Uh, they were commissioned, commissioned specially, yes, by Julie Irene Kaufman, um, by Tom Corbin for this pond. And um, from what I have heard, they are representatives of her three daughters. Oh, how lovely. And that's why we have three dancing girls, because uh, Mrs. Kaufman has three daughters. And then Ewing and Muriel are both buried here, correct? Ewing, Ewing and Muriel are both buried here. They're back behind one of my garden sheds in a nice little tucked-in garden area. Um, when the garden first opened in 2000, they weren't here. It wasn't planned really for them to be here. They were already buried at his drug company, Mary and Merrill Dow, in a lovely courtyard there. Uh, in 2002, the people who purchased his drug company requested that they be moved somewhere else so they didn't have to maintain that area uh, as graveyard. <laughs> so they got moved here into what was a little meeting room uh, tucked back over there. Uh, one night and the next morning we re-landscaped it and most people think they've always been here yeah it's very it's, peaceful it is very very peaceful but it's such an interesting place to stroll around because it's, it's sort of compartmentalized in, in such a way that one leads on to the other it's we we say it's five different garden rooms within the area the styles of the rooms pretty much are the same but yeah you go into kind of five different rooms as you pass through the garden and, and when you do that, the selection of shrubs as the main structure changes as well, doesn't it? Um, definitely. Some things are more formal, uh, especially towards the middle of the garden. And as you get towards the exterior, they're uh, left a little more unpruned and, and more less formal. And how often do you clip the um, formal box hedges? My, my box hedges get clipped once a year. Um, they get clipped uh, right after... Their new spring growth hardens off. Uh, sometimes in the fall they can look pretty ratty and people think I need to trim them again, but gardening here in the Midwest is one of the tricks that we've learned that you want to leave those ratty looking things on there because that's what's going to get froze off in the <laughs> winter the and burned yeah. uh, and protect some of the undergrowth so it's pretty in the spring when you share yeah. do, do you find that you have a bit of a microclimate here though with these walls and everything? Absolutely, I have a bit of a microclimate here. We have a lot of stone and a lot of brick that definitely absorbs and retains heat. Um, plus, I have um, sprinkler systems and overhead sprinklers that I use, so it's uh, always much more humid in here than it is most other places. It does stay a little warmer in the winter, too, because of the sun and the bricks. And the tried some hardy camellias. They were growing great for the last five years, but last year, no more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, last year was pretty hot. Do you have any espalier? Uh, there is an espalier over here with the uh, chenomalies, a quince on the wall. Uh, there is an espalier of a hibiscus syricus over here, which is done into a fountain shape. Um, and there is a boxwood that has been pruned into a face, which isn't really an espalier. But we have two what I would consider espaliers here. You, you have a, a huge variety of plants. What would you think are the top most unusual ones that are growing here that wouldn't normally grow here? Probably my favorite most unusual plant would be the umbrella pine that's back mm -hmm. behind the orangery. Yeah. Uh, to me it almost looks fake because it's almost plastic looking mm -hmm. when you look at it. Uh, it's a very beautiful plant and a very slow growing plant. Uh, I would say that would be probably the most unusual. Did you get to plan the actual plants that are here in the garden? There was a design firm that designed all the original beds and the original shrub layout uh, from Pennsylvania. Of course, that's not Kansas City. So over the next uh, 12, 10, 12, 14 years, we have been changing and uh, replacing and doing things that work right. A lot of the things still are the original plantings, though a lot of the main structural plantings. A lot of the perennials move around or are short-lived and get replaced. And of course the annual beds get replaced four times a year. So a lot of the main structural uh, plant material were designed by a firm. I, no I noticed that you've got some quite nice uh, catinas, for example. And I could just couldn't keep mine alive this year. They just died down to ground level. I must have gotten lucky. Because <laughs> I would have expected them to die back too, but I didn't learn one thing on that uh, purple smoke bush is you really don't want to try to prune it into a small tree form because it doesn't like to have that exactly. done to it and actually then when I tried that kept dying back on me 
So I just had to let it go and do what it wants naturally to get that beautiful uh, burgundy color yeah, in the garden. They certainly look gorgeous. Seeing as I'm English and you like to travel to Europe, I thought, well, let's add a little bit more to the travels where you get your ideas from. We've mentioned Mexico and France and England. So t tell me a little bit about how much fun you have doing that. Oh gosh, traveling has pretty much become my hobby these days. Um, been lucky enough to have lived in the same home for almost 30 years now, so it's been paid off for a while, and I can afford to uh, go on nice vacations and travel and go to gardens to get inspired by what others do and, and learn from techniques they may have that I've not seen, or, you know, in different parts of the world, people do things differently, and it's always nice to see much why they do it or understand. What have been your most memorable visits, do you think? The most memorable visits were the times I've been to the Chelsea Garden Show. <laughs> I, if you're a gardener, it is an absolute must-do. Um, the first time I went, I went in early in the morning. Of course, I was there before the gates opened, before the line got there. So I was, I think I was there at 5.30 in the morning waiting uh, on Queen's Day. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, went in and... There is just so much to see. My eyes were so full. My heart was so open the whole day that all of a sudden I started getting hungry and dizzy and sick. And, you know, it's six o'clock in the evening and I hadn't eaten anything all day. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. I've actually uh, built three Chelsea Flower Show gardens. And um, there is something really special when you walk into that huge marquee of, what, two, two and a half acres and the scents and everything just overwhelm you. And the colors over oh, there yes. are so intense. I mean, it must be your climate, but I have never seen colors as intense there as anywhere else. Well, they are all kept um, kept back so that they're in absolute perfection. But um, and what, what's really cool is if you get there early, you don't have quite so many thousands of people to struggle through to see everything. But uh, yeah, it it is kind of a special place, I must admit. It's wonderful. One of the things I remember is uh, the whole rows of greenhouses. <laughs> I guess you call them greenhouses yes. there that they put on roofs and beside buildings. And it, it was like a whole village, three, four blocks of different vendors. All yeah. just it was just adorable. I think they they probably they're a link between a, a conservatory and a greenhouse, but they they're definitely there for the plants. That's yeah, for sure. It's amazing. But um, so how about in France? Because France has some beautiful estates and uh, gardens of course you got to go to Monet's if you yes. go there you know we've all learned a lot about his gardening techniques and the way that he enriches the soil in order for him to get that continual bloom for his paintings yes. all year we uh, the garden of Giverny mm -hmm. uh, is is wonderful um, palace of Versailles uh, of course you yeah. got to get to I mean, it's it's mind-blowing to see some of the dancing fountains and I must and admit things there the, the the fountain with the two hands in Versailles is the one that it, it just sort of says I'm disappearing and, and it is just amazing yes it's truly amazing um, and just to see all the different things that people who are creative come up with is, is what's so exciting about traveling and, and so you mentioned that you've been to uh, Mexico as well um, was that right yes and I've never been south of the border haven't been to a lot of gardens in Mexico, except for where the cruise ship dropped me off in Cozumel. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, when you take board it on the cruise ships as a gardener, you always seek out what garden or botanical park or something yeah. to see there, but, rather than what the rest of the tourists are doing. The, the reason why I mention Mexico is because it, it, it's always fascinated me that they tend to have uh, courtyards that then create the um, um, transfer evaporation, for want of a better word, of heat and moisture, so that they're able to grow things and yet they're, they're um, protected from this intense heat. And I think their courtyards actually become more of a part of their living space yeah. um, there because of that cooling type situation in those areas. It reminds me a little bit about this walled garden because I, th I feel that you, you, you're definitely protected from a lot of the drying winds that we, we receive here. The winds uh, somewhat are protected, but we are almost on Brush Creek and it seems to be a wind tunnel. Uh -huh. that comes down through here because there are no buildings really on either east or west side of us because the creek flows there. So anytime the wind blows east to west or west to east, we get a lot of wind right through here. But it, 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 it 
seems to, I, I don't know why, why, but there's no real wind damage or scorch or anything like that. It's still early in the season. True. This is it's very still true. early in the season. Later in the season, we so, always get a little bit of summer scorch. Wind damage, not so much. I keep everything pretty heavily pruned so that wind, snow, and ice damage is going to be at a minimum. Yes, it, it, I, I, the, the uh, aftercare is absolutely astounding, actually, without, without a doubt. So when's the best time to come and visit? Best time to come and visit in the garden is right when we open the gates, and that's uh, at 8 o'clock at the latest. So we're really privileged. It's still only 7 o'clock here. It's still only 7 o'clock during the summer when the gardeners and I come early. Uh, we'll generally open the gate to the public when we're here so that they can come in. Since we don't charge a fee to get in, we don't have to have anybody at the gates. And when we open early, we get a lot of people who are out on their morning walk or their morning run uh, coming through here before work. It's, it's kind of nice. That's really very nice, actually. So um, what I'd like to say is may we come back later in the season? Absolutely. Please come back anytime you'd like. I love to have visitors at the garden, especially garden visitors who... Uh, can talk plants and appreciate what we do here and know the amount of work that my volunteers put forth to uh, produce a product like this. Yeah, I think we should just mention those volunteers again because they really obviously do an enormous amount of work. I watched them yesterday and, and you were almost like a slave driver out there. I was uh, quite impressed actually. Well, you know, I've, I've worked with the groups of volunteers long enough to know they don't like me to be wishy-washy when they get here. They come to volunteer and to work, and they want to know what I would like. And so I try to explain myself in a manner that's very sincere that they know what I need. Oh, I think you were effective. And um, it's great to have them. I could not do it without them. I, There's I, no way. I'm sure that's true, and I'm sure that they actually like the, the, your uh, style and technique. We, ha we have a lot of fun together. I mean, we, we laugh and giggle and have water balloon fights sometimes in the heat of the summer and squirt with hoses and pushes into fountains. And, you know, it's, it's a good group of people. Yes. We're almost friends that play around when we're here. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I really thank you so much for spending this time with us. It has been more than a pleasure to just, I'm kind of speechless. I don't know what to say. <laughs> to just take this garden in and just, uh, Thank you so much for sharing it with us this morning and starting our days off so beautifully. I know that's how you start every one of your days, but um, it's just been a pleasure speaking. Well, look forward to the next time to see you. Thank you very much, Wayne. You bet. A trip to the Weston Red Barn Farm is like visiting a turn-of-the-century working farm. In the spirit of preserving the American dream of farming, a trip to the Weston Red Barn Farm offers you the opportunity to do just that, featuring traditional farm animals and crops on the working farm, a country store with the most tasty fresh produce and local specialties, facilities for weddings, bonfires, hayrides, virtually every event, and even a fall festival where families can come pick pumpkins and apples, take a hayride, and enjoy the country. Visit WestonRedBarnFarm.com and come see us this weekend for an experience that will take you back in time and make your heart sing. WestonRedBarnFarm.com Well, hello everybody. This is Chris, and uh, welcome to Growing Trends. And where are we, Chris? This is someplace I think most gardeners would not expect us to be at for today's show. Well, I'm actually on the floor of the Nelson Atkins Museum, and on the other hand, is sitting on a bench. It's such a privilege to be here. We are going to have an extraordinary interview with a very special friend of Chris's, and I am going to let her introduce herself. I'm Jan Shaw. I'm the Sandra Soslin Curator of Modern Art at the Nelson Atkins. And for those of you who are uh, just tuning in and aren't aware of where Nelson Atkins Museum is located, we are on the Kansas City, Missouri side of the greater Kansas City area, right off of Oak Street, near the plaza. Um, it's a beautiful part of our city. We're very proud 
to be here today and be able to experience this whole place. I, I have put Whitman in um, the Nelson Art Gallery. We are right off of the main hall. Is that correct, Jim? Yeah, right off of the Kirkwood Hall. Yes. So, Jan, um, how long have you been here? I've been here for 18 years, 18 wonderful years. And we were talking earlier about um, how you were able to uh, see the expansion of the museum and um, uh, help with the uh, new landscape outside. Yes, the, the addition of the block building was a tremendous project that we undertook and it involved and required that we adjust the sculpture park as well. And so um, what really interests me is the sculptures. You must know so much about them. There are so many of them. So, um, should we start with my favorites, the Henry Moores? Uh, the Henry Moores, that's where we started with the Henry Moores. We have, uh, we have 10 Henry Moore sculptures in the sculpture park that came through the generosity of the Hall Family Foundation. And we have additional works inside, maquettes and working models, for a total of 47 works of art by Henry Moore in the museum. That is really quite a collection, isn't it? It is. It's an extraordinary collection and rare. And, and so how were they um, laid out? I, I understand that Henry Moore himself actually came and helped place some of them. Henry Moore placed one of the works. He placed Sheet Piece, which actually belongs to the city of Kansas City, and that he came to do, which was separate from the acquisition of the sculptures that we own for the museum. So did they all come together and uh, were they- They came in one fell swoop, exactly. He had an opportunity to, not he, but the Hall Family Foundation had an opportunity to acquire this whole suite of works by Henry Moore uh, because George Oblob from Wichita, Kansas had decided to divest himself of part of his collection. And the, the Hall Family Foundation was in the right place at the right time and acquired a huge portion of it. The other portion went to the Hakone um, Museum and um, Landscape Garden in Japan. Now that's really quite something, isn't it? And, and, and there's there's a Rodin I noticed outside. We do have one of the great Rodins, the thinker, the famous thinker, and that also belongs to the city. It was a gift from some Kansas Cityans to the city of Kansas City some years way before I was here. I use that as an expression of, I think, therefore, am I? <laughs> I like the twist on that. Jan, can you tell me, as a um, ignorant art person, let's just say our average listener isn't going to know very much about Henry Moore, can you tell us a little bit about the man in his work and what sets him so far above so many other sculptors? Well, Henry Moore was a British artist, English artist. He lived in Perry Green. Machado area, um, and was someone who was active in the larger sphere of modern art throughout the world, known internationally. Um, he is known for his very organic forms, his passion for nature and the natural forms of the world, which he then incorporated with apparent interest in the human figure, and really made this beautiful alliance and comprehension of understanding of the relationships between the curves and bones of a human body and those of nature itself. And that's what sets his work apart. And he works abstractly, so you may, in a few of the earlier works, recognize specific kinds of figures, but they become more and more abstract over time. And the other aspect of his work that's so important is his embrace of the notion of open spaces within the sculpture. I noticed one as I was walking through the courtyard outside, it looked like a heart shape, and then at the base, and I don't know if it was a Henry Moore at the base, it looked like um, four elements. I'm talking about this right where we were sitting originally, right, we walked right past it. Shape of a heart. Oh, that's not Henry Moore. That's not Henry Moore. <laughs> there we go. That's a Lipschitz. Okay, we had an open area in it, which maybe made perhaps it was Okay, so that's another artist that we also have. Yes, we have, we have quite a number of artists represented in the sculpture park. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Sure, the sculpture park has a wide variety of sculptures. We have sculptures, as we talked about, Henry Moore. We have, of course, the famous shuttlecocks by Klaus Oldenburg. And yes, Edmund I was going to talk about the shuttlecocks. I hear there's some controversy about them. 
Well, there was, and I guess it still continues in some people's minds, but the shuttlecocks are, consist of four giant badminton birdies. Um, they weigh 5,500 pounds apiece, and they are 18 feet tall, so they're not your ordinary badminton but, um, birdies. But the idea behind them was, for Klaus and Koja, to create a sculpture that was site-specific to Kansas City, to this museum, and after looking at the city itself and the green yards throughout the, mid the Midwest and thinking about the metaphors of the West and the westward movement and Amelia Earhart and covered wagons and windmills and Charlie Yardbird Parker, who was, was his nickname, they began to think about the museum itself as a net and the shuttlecocks as a game in progress played by giants. And so we have two on the south lawn, one that is proverbially caught in the net, which is in the West Sculpture Terrace, and the fourth one that theoretically made it over the net and is on the north side. I think they're absolutely wonderful. They, they have a fabulous feeling of movement. Too. They do indeed. They're all landing in different positions. So even though each one of them is exactly the same piece, it's not the same piece because of the way it's installed, various angles upside down and so forth. Yeah, I think absolutely wonderful. It's brilliant. We are thrilled to have them. And they, they have transformed the museum, transformed people's experience of the museum. And then on, on the, uh, in the in the sculpture park itself, there's this huge steel or stainless steel tree. Yes, that's by Roxy Payne. That is one of our newer acquisitions. It is 56 feet tall, 35 feet across. It is the largest of the dendroids that Roxy Payne made and the most complex of all of the works that he has made as he says and it is made out of stainless steel it was fabricated at his studio in upstate New York transported on numerous flatbed trucks to Kansas City and installed by the team um, it was an amazing venture and it, of course because of all of that top heaviness it has a base that, that goes deep into the ground and into the bedrock frankly to root it clearly in the ground it's quite quite amazing. I'm I'm trying to think of the best time to take a picture. It's because it, it just changes with the um, with the hours. It does indeed because it's highly reflective stainless steel. So it's catching the light at various moments, and sometimes it's literally flashing with light, and sometimes it's in a fog. It's got a beautiful kind of softness to it, and um, it's set within a background of our own natural trees and it's up on a high promontory, so it's a place that when we walked through the park with the artist, he chose. We had several spots in mind where it might go um, before we even knew exactly what it was going to be, and he selected that location, which we then immediately began planning for and uh, preparing for its arrival. So really, he built that statue for that site. He built that, he made a drawing of a piece that looked like that. And the work of art itself is the, a gift from the Hall Family Foundation to the Nelson Atkins in the name of Martin Friedman, who was their art consultant. And Martin Friedman uh, has, was at the moment of his retirement, and it was a great gift to Martin and also, of course, to us, and then, of course, beyond us, to the whole city and to the world. It's an amazing work. I think it's fascinating that I love that blend of mixing nature and what happens naturally in nature with something that's contrived, but because it's not natural for a sculpture that's rooted in the bedrock to come out of nowhere and appear in your grassy space, but he's made it relate to that space so perfectly, which is why it works so well. It does. It does. And his uh, another aspect of his work is really focusing on this this odd relationship and problematic relationship sometimes that we have between technology, between manufactured things, and the natural. And that's what's also, to me, interesting about the additions that have been put on the Nelson here, and how they have fit into the landscape. Uh, you have really done an excellent job of making the pieces, the buildings themselves, even relate to each other and relate to, relate to the grounds around them. Can you talk a little bit about that? The architecture, you're talking about the block building, which was a, a, an addition that opened in 2007 here at the Nelson Atkins. 
It's by the architect Stephen Hall, and frankly, the work is being considered for you know, prizes all the time because it's such an outstanding work of architecture in and of itself, but also, as you mentioned, for its relationship to this building, the Nelson Atkins building. And the Nelson Atkins building is a neoclassical Beaux-Arts building, very rectilinear, very um, stony, and his idea, Stephen Hall's idea, was to create a relationship between what he calls stone and his building, which he calls feather. So it's a building of glass, it's lightweight, it's white, it's a building that flows in and out of the landscape itself with spaces in between, green spaces in between, and there's a really beautiful correspondence between the two, a dialogue that exists between the two buildings. And I would say that the block building is a work of sculpture in addition to being and, and then you have the uh, actual landscape itself that was laid out by a couple of famous uh, American landscape architects. Two of the very best, Dan Kiley and Robert and uh, Jack Robertson were the architects who worked on landscaping the park. Originally, it was just a big parkland uh, and had no specific definition. But those two architects transformed the way the park feels and the way we work and move through it and made it into, um, on one hand, responding to the English garden tradition along the east and west wings of the park, and then to a more formal garden tradition, more um, Versailles, more like the great palaces of Europe uh, down the center with terracing and so forth, and a very strong open wall. But the planking treed areas with the winding paths and the British benches are very, very appropriate for what the park began with, which was it was first it uh, was first known as the Henry Moore Sculpture Garden. And then as the shuttlecocks entered and a few more things entered, we renamed it the Kansas City Sculpture Park. And now just this year we've renamed it the Donald J. Hall Sculpture Park because Donald J. Hall as president of Hallmark and as president of the Hall Family Foundation uh, has been really the visionary that has helped inspire all of this as happened here. And so on the main entrance, there's um, a pond with a still sculpture in it and uh, a whole host of um, regimented uh, people overlooking it. Well, they're really two completely different sculptures. And what you're talking about in the pond <coughs> is a, a rectangular low pond with a bronze and gold-leafed slab in the just off center, if you would divide the pond in quarters and divide the nearest quarter to both of the wings of the museum into quarters, you would have the size of that piece. It's 1 16th the size of the pond, uh, uh, the reflecting pool, we would call it. And it's a piece by uh, Walter de Maria, who is most famous for his lightning field in New Mexico. And this piece he did for us, it's called One Sun, 34 Moons. It was really a, an amazing collaboration as we knew we were going to have an underground parking garage on the north side, which would free up what had been an on top of the ground parking, just parking plots. Um, we knew we would have to suddenly new acreage to field for the sculpture park and engaged Stephen Hall and uh, Walter to talk about the collaboration and that's how that all happened. And so we have one sun, which is the gold leaf slab, and 34 moons, which are the glass oculi, which are trimmed in white neon that are open to bringing light down into the garage on, underneath. So it's inside, outside, all around. Art is everywhere here. We're going to take a break now. We uh, want to thank all of you for listening to Growing Trends. We'll be back after this short break with our guest, Jan Shaw here at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City, Missouri. Would you like to complete a landscape project, flower bed, or your own produce garden at home in just a weekend? Would you like the project to be quick and easy to complete? How about all of the instructions so that you can do it yourself easily? Of course you do! With over 40 years experience of creating multi-award winning projects, we decided to take this knowledge and our clients request to be able to create some smaller projects themselves and developed the Weekend Garden Kit. Now you can, in one weekend, gather the plants, fixtures and fittings to complete a project in one weekend. This unique patented system makes the process simple, cost effective and quick. 
cutting in half the usual time to set out and do the planting. The fabric in the kit acts as a landscape mulch to reduce water loss and help prevent weeds. Want to know more? Visit pickagardi.com. That's P-I-C-A-G-A-R-D-I dot com. Welcome back to uh, Growing Trends. I'm still sitting on the floor of the Nelson Engines, and Anne and Jan are with me, but they're sitting on a very soft, hard bench seat. <laughs> so, um, with that in mind, and, and the fact that um, I'm kind of enjoying myself here, uh, I must ask Jan, how did you get here? Well, um, I, had, I was working as a professor for 12 years and um, became more and more interested in the idea of curatorial work. And heard about this job, applied for this job, and arrived at Nelson Atkins in 1996, and have been here ever since, and had, as I say sometimes, I feel that I came right on time, because it was just as we were beginning to ramp up and start to think about an addition to the building, and uh, that ended up being the Stephen Hall building that we've talked about just a little ago. And um, so I feel like I was at, at just the right place at the right moment when I could be a part of something truly rare and exciting happening here at the museum and happening for Kansas City. This new building, which then took up a huge chunk of what had been the sculpture park, which required the sculpture park to be revised as well. So to have been part of both those architectural and landscape architectural discussions and decisions has been just an unbelievable experience, um, just rare. So, um where would you like to go and visit? Well, whenever I travel, of course, I go to museums, I go to great cathedrals, and I go to gardens, from you know, big gardens at Versailles, those kinds of gardens which are extremely planned, to smaller gardens. Um, English Garden in Munich is a favorite of mine, and there are so many others around Europe that I love to go to. And, and that same uh, idea applies here in the United States. So which ones are on your bucket list still? Oh, we were just talking about one, and you're going to have to remind me of the name of it in, in England because we were talking about it and it sounded so interesting. I didn't know about it, so that's now on my list. You'll have to remind me. What is it? Was it the one near Leeds? Well, the one that you were talking about. Um, oh, the Museum of London. The, the Museum of London. The Museum of London, where, where, yes. Where we built a roof garden. Right, but you were talking about the garden in Lyon. In Lyon, oh, yes. Now, in Lyon, what, what happens there is that there are lots and lots of um, courtyards, just like the um, Roselle Court, Roselle Court yeah, here. And you just walk through a, an archway, and there it is. And you're like, you know, you can just keep walking and yeah. keep seeing them. And they're on either side. You've got the Seine and the Seine, and, and this island in the middle, and lots of restaurants. So you can uh, go to one restaurant for your um, um, appetizer. Go to another restaurant for your uh, main course, and then go to another restaurant for your dessert. And each time you can walk through a courtyard. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's a musical, um, a little feast. It, it's a small board, yes, absolutely. Uh -huh. But um, it's not quite um, Leon's uh, um, um, temperatures and things are very similar to Kansas City. So, so you don't have such a wide variety of plants that you get in in the northern areas like England. We were also talking about Central Park, of course, with Olmsted. Oh, yes. Olmsted and what a fantastic park <coughs> that was and, and how it really introduced the whole notion of landscape landscape architecture into the idea of creating parklands. Yeah. And in a city, in the middle of New York City, um, what a beautiful respite that place is. Absolutely. I just love the bridge. The, the bridge is just amazing, the position of it. And it's right next to, is it the sheep? Park or sheep field or something. Sheep field, uh -huh. and yes. also where, um, let's see, is it uh, John Lennon? John Lennon's memorial, John yes. Memorial, Strawberry Fields. That's it, Strawberry Fields. Yes, been there. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's wonderful. Yeah, Olmsted is really um, the grandfather of landscape architecture from, from everything I can see. Certainly in the United States. I think it's in the world. I don't think landscape architects existed until Olmsted turned up because you had famous English gardeners like uh, the Reverend Gilpin and uh, Capability Brown and um, such like, but, but there wasn't actually a landscape architect. Well, that's a great tribute to him. He's a remarkable... Oh, he was. He was absolutely superb. Brilliant insights and 
green sensitivity. So then you need to, um, I'm thinking, um, some of the great um, gardens in England, like... Um, I like the physics garden, physics garden in The Chelsea Physics Garden? That's where I got a lot of plants from for the uh, Museum of London. It was, if it hadn't been for their collection, we'd never have been able to go back to the 14th century. Well, that's, I love that place because of its antiquity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, most people don't even know it exists. You need to tell our listeners what you mean by going back to the 14th century. Um, well, you've seen the movie, Back in Time. The 14th century is 600 some years ago. Yes, but I mean, why were you finding plants from the 14th century? Oh, okay. There's a famous English designer called Sir Roy Strong. And there's an interesting museum called the Museum of London. And for my sins, I was um, contracted to build a roof garden for them of some meagre size. For your sins? Sins, yes. It was, uh, <laughs> you had quite a bit of restitution to make. So what was your project? What was your the project was to um, trace the history of London's plants from the 14th century, the Middle Ages, through to the present time. And there's a book about it, and it's, uh, I can even remember who, um, one of the museum curators wrote the book, her name was Marie or Maru Galano, and it's actually in print. And so for my sins, I, I did the work. And so tell us what you did. Well, we took a roof garden and uh, removed everything that was on it from a, uh, a, in a very interesting way and then put back all this exhibition that had been designed by a really cool couple of landscape architects called um, Carol Colson and Richard Stone. It took us three months and uh, then it was open to the public for six months and we supplied the uh, experts to uh, talk to people about what was in the garden. It was kind of fun. Sounds like a place to visit, I'm convinced. Um, the museum is lovely. It has um, a lot of old shop fronts. It has lots of things that are truly uh, London and, and historical to London. Because obviously, you know, there was a lot of things that happened in London. I love that. I love the Museum of Paris as well. The same reason. Mm -hmm. It's just such a, a flashback really walk through time. Yeah, it's, there's, there's another one, actually, if we're going to talk about museums that, that, that would fascinate you too, maybe, and that's at Chatham. There's what's called the Chatham Historical Dockyard, and they have live um, um, exhibition of how a tall ship was built, you know, a man of war, and you, you walk through it as it's being built, and it's the, the day in the life of this boy that's working in the docks. It's absolutely spectacular. Th those sort of things I just love. But um, it's, it's just like here, you've got the uh, Chinese and um, um, there's some other rooms, that, um, Egyptian I think they are, they're, they're absolutely gorgeous. We've, we've really worked hard to create the sense here that we are traveling through time and place. And um, you know, some, some museums that you visit have all of these kinds of things, have the part of the whole world, but it's presented in a kind of neutral space. And what I love about Vanessa Atkins is that every space that you go into feels like, looks like, and the whole ambiance is that of that moment, of that, that moment in that place. Well, they certainly accomplished that, and I like that even as you leave the building, you're still walking through art. <laughs> well, it has been a real pleasure to visit with you, Jan. I, I know there's so many things we learned from you today, and really appreciate your sharing knowledge with us about the gardens here around the Nelson Atkins and the statuary and I'm I just love being here. I am I have job envy right now. <laughs> I have your job. It's been really fun and such a pleasure to know you both. Thank you and we will definitely come back and get an update on uh, anything new that might be coming up. Okay, we'll keep you posted. Sounds like a plan. Chris, what do you think? Yeah I think so. I'll pass on the badminton for now. It looks a bit hard work. You'll pass on the what? The badminton. Yeah, those shuttlecocks, I don't think I could hit one of those. They weigh too much. <laughs> I think if you could hit one of those, you'd have a different kind of job. But Thanks for listening, folks. We really appreciate you turning into Growing Trends. Get your new ride from Lee's Summit Mazda. 
We have more than 200 new Mazdas in stock, and they're ready for delivery today. Want the most money for your trade-in? We'll offer you more than anyone else, no matter what it is. So if you're looking for the best deal, the best service, and the best selection, the best choice is Lee Summit Mazda. Stop by the store at 50 Highway and Todd George Road or visit us anytime at LeeSummitMazda.com.